0: This is Nicole Deffenbaugh. If you are enjoying the podcast, we invite you to tell your friends and family and like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast.
1: I remember laying in a hospital bed, unable to keep any food down. My digestive system had shut down because I had just undergone emergency surgery for peritonitis, a very bad infection of the abdomen. It was a complication from another surgery. I wasn't able to keep anything in my stomach, and my chart said that I was on a liquid-only diet. I was being given every kind of anti-nausea medication that you can imagine, like Phenergan and Zofran, and those were not helping. Then one day, a nurse came in and asked me what do you eat when you're sick? And I thought, hmm, that's an interesting question. And my mom said, "Uh, yeah, what do you eat? Um, And I said, applesauce and graham crackers, actually. And so we tried that. We tried applesauce and graham crackers, and miraculously, 10, 15 minutes went by and it was not coming back up. And we got more and more excited as time went on, and I was able to keep some food down, and the next day, I got to go home.
0: Welcome to Health Stories, interviews inside healthcare. These are stories of real people, patients, and physicians as they navigate through our complex US healthcare system. I'm Nicole Deffenbaugh. And today, we are joined with Claire, who is going to be telling her story of healing, uh, which led to self-advocacy and more effective communication. So welcome to the podcast, Claire.
1: Thank you for having me. Good.
0: Uh, my microphone just moved. So for everyone who just heard that, um, uh, so, so this is an interesting story that you're telling. You're in the hospital, and I'm sure people who have listened have been in the hospital before. And there are very strict rules of what you can and cannot do and what you can and cannot eat. And so your orders said liquid diet only. And here comes this nurse and asks you what you eat when you're not feeling well. And you said graham crackers and applesauce. And uh, and that seemed to do the trick, huh? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so um,
1: it was before that point, it was beef broth and mm. red jello. And I just remember thinking, I don't even eat this stuff normally, and it was awful, and uh, so I I couldn't keep it down. Every time I ate something, I pretty much immediately threw it back up, and the doctor was telling me, we need to wake up your digestive system. We need to wake back up your stomach and your bowels and everything before we can let you go home. Mm. By that point, I hadn't showered in a while. I was feeling really gross. I was like, please just let me go home. So I was trying everything, and when this nurse suggested you know, what do you eat when you're sick? And I thought graham crackers and applesauce, sure, that isn't a liquid diet, but sure tastes a whole heck of a lot better than beef broth (laughs) and cherry jello. So we tried that and I kept it down and finally was able to take a shower that night. It was Mm -hmm. incredible. And that was really my turnaround point because a nurse had asked me, well, how do you deal with Normally, when you have nausea and sickness and illness, how do you normally deal with that? And that was what really helped me reach this point of turnaround.
0: Yeah, a it, it, really good example of patient-centered care, right? So um, addressing what the patient needed. I, I, of course, can't help but wonder, you know, if the nurse had a conversation with someone before, you know, you actually got uh, some food You know, we don't know if she went, you know, above or beyond what it was the protocol in terms of keeping Uh you on a liquid diet. So I'm sure there are some other questions as clinicians are listening, thinking, well, I don't know if she was supposed to do that. Um, But at the same time, though, um, we can only assume that perhaps she did get the the green light to do that. um, And that she was the first person to really ask you the question that needed to be asked, which which was, you know, what was going to help you and and what uh, has helped in the past? Um, I want to switch in and have our listeners understand a little bit about your story. Can you tell us, Claire, how you ended up in the hospital and a little bit about that story?
1: Absolutely. So it began actually when I was taking a midterm at my university and I had some really sharp stomach pains. And I went to urgent care and they referred me to the emergency room with what they thought was appendicitis. It was in my lower right stomach and I was just you know nauseous and in pain and it turns out uh, after doing an ultrasound and, and checking things out a bit more that I had a softball sized ovarian cyst that had never been caught before but was pushing on my organs and that was torsing my ovary which basically means it wasn't getting any blood and it was causing a lot of pain so they took me in for emergency surgery the next day and during that surgery there was some kind of accident maybe that happened. The doctor suggested that maybe a hot tool in a laparoscopic surgery, which is where they go in through just a couple of incisions with a camera to see everything, uh, that maybe a hot tool had gotten too close to my bowel, Mm -hmm. my colon, and had created a weak spot that then perforated. So over the next week after I was released from The outpatient procedure, the ovarian cyst surgery, was supposed to be a very simple, easy surgery to recover from. It was laparoscopic through the couple tiny incisions, so it wasn't supposed to be a very invasive surgery. And the doctor was able to save my ovary, but unfortunately, due to just how sort of, for lack of a better term, chaotic my abdomen was at Mm -hmm. that point, it was uh, unfortunately that my bowel ended up becoming perforated. So I ended up with a fever and in a lot of pain over the next week and eventually back to the hospital where I ended up just with a lot of doctors scratching their heads saying, we don't know why you're in this much pain. We don't know why you have a fever. And so I spent that night in the hospital with my mom there with me, just trying to figure out why in the world am I in so much pain and have a fever? Well, so the next day in the morning, uh, I was getting up to use the restroom, and I actually passed out and uh, called the nurse and, of course, saw the doctors come flooding in, and they're trying to figure out what in the world is wrong. It's clear that it's getting more dire. Um, the fever was down by this point because they were treating me with uh, medications that, that reduce fever, but the, the underlying problem was still there, clearly, so I had a few doctors come, and and prod. I remember uh, reflexively slapping one doctor's hand away from my abdomen when he was probing around, just trying to feel for what could be wrong. And I remember the moment that my surgeon, who ended up uh, performing the surgery just that same day, actually, he basically said, clear my clear my schedule after this happened. But he came in and he reached towards my abdomen and he noticed my body language, he called it guarding, where my hands were in front of my abdomen and the way that I tensed up and the way that I was behaving, he could tell, I think maybe he had seen this before, that this was a severe abdominal infection that had reached the point where it was very, very dire. So he said, clear my schedule, we are taking you in for surgery and, you know, 20 minutes. (laughs) So my mom rushes in, you know, my my partner leaves work and comes, he's distraught. Um, My parents and my my siblings are very worried. And uh, for the first surgery, the laparoscopic ovarian cyst surgery, I was a little nervous. I wasn't as nervous as I was at this one, but at this point I had had a severe fever later come to find out I had a huge abscess on my liver. Um, That was why I was having pain right there and guarding and slapping hands away (laughs) of doctors probing. And that at that point I was thinking, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to come out of that operating room. So I told them that I love them. And I actually was talking to my partner the other day about this and he said I had no question that you were going to come out it didn't even occur to me that you might not make it but at that point I wasn't really sure so it was really chaotic uh, I was in a lot of pain I remember waking up and my partner was sitting at a, at a chair it must have been midnight woke up with tubes out of my nose out of my abdomen two or three tubes and that had always been a sort of fear of mine so I woke up IVs in both arms, tubes everywhere, just you know, kind of unbelievable pain. But at the same time thinking, I, I did it. <laughs> here I am, I guess I'm here, right? And there's, there's my partner sitting in the chair over there. So wow, I really had a lot to thank that doctor for.
0: Yeah. Wow, okay, so you, you you've had a lot happen, so you had um, <laughs> you had surgery that you knew was coming. Because they, they had this um, with your ovarian cyst, so you knew you were going to have that surgery. But then the complications that occurred and what was happening inside your abdomen, which ended up being an abscess on your liver, is something that nobody knew what was going on. Um, but it sounded like they were trying to figure it out. When you said raging fever, I'm like, oh, you have an infection somewhere, right? So <laughs> clearly, clearly something's going on, but they didn't know the source and it was a doctor who didn't even have to touch you just watched your body language it sounds like to be able to diagnose you and say oh my gosh we got to get you in so that's really that's that's really interesting that that had ha- i'm I'm kind of curious how many people came in and poked and prodded before that happened
1: it was two doctors before that surgeon so it was i believe a general practitioner who was on the surgery floor and then an obgyn who was checking in from the practice where I had had my ovarian cyst surgery, the the surgeon who had performed that, they usually have a doctor on call there, and and they came to check in with me first as well. And my third doctor, the third one to come in, who was the one who figured out what was going on, was actually a GI surgeon. Mm -hmm. So it just so happened that this was a well-respected surgeon that they just asked him to come take a look, and he immediately knew. And fortunately for me, it was, in fact, a GI issue. It was about perforation. So I'm guessing probably he's seen this sort of peritonitis inflamed infection of the abdomen before from a perforation like this, which can happen after surgery. It's a complication that you go into abdominal surgery knowing can happen. It's a relatively rare one, but one that can happen. So... Yeah. I wouldn't knowing that for sure
0: yeah and and also reflecting on how you said you weren't sure if you were going to make it you know so you're it sounds like you understood sort of the severity and recognized of course your own pain um, and were more scared than perhaps the people around realized and I, I'm hearing that too is that there there seems to be sort of a consensus of not recognizing the severity of the situation until this doctor really um, was paying attention to your body language and, and was brought in to assess so um in very very interesting story so thank you thank you for sharing that claire uh-huh. so um so tell me a little bit about uh so having spoken with you before this interview just to get a little bit of your story so tell me uh, about some of um what had happened i guess after this point, can you, can you tell, tell the listeners a little bit more about um, what had happened um, as a result of how you were cared for it in the hospital? So
1: as I was cared for in
0: the hospital in
1: the first surgery, it was an outpatient procedure that, like I said, was supposed to be a relatively simple one. And I called the doctor on call for the practice over the weekend and he was a little bit dismissive of the symptoms and the severity and the situation but by the time that and this was on the weekend of course he was on call Mm. probably with his family but the following tuesday i knew that something was beyond wrong and i was not going to wait and so there was a moment for me where i thought i need to really push for this I can't wait any longer so I was going to have my brother drive me to the hospital but my mom got home and was able to take me to the hospital but there was definitely a moment of I have to advocate for myself here I think the doctors don't really know what's going on and I I know from how I'm feeling from just this gut feeling
0: literally right
1: <laughs> no, pun <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, this gut feeling of, of something just being so wrong that was just you know I was taking lots of pain medications I was taking the maximum dose of pain medications of course I didn't want to have to do that but it wasn't even it wasn't even treating the pain that I was in and you know doctors told me well pain is normal after surgery you just had hmm. a, a pretty severe you know ovarian cyst removed and abdominal surgery is painful but I was like no not not like this <laughs> not like
0: was this. the pain increasing is that what was going on like you you had post-surgery pain but it sounds like it was increasing or changing or something indicated that it was different than just healing right
1: oh yes yeah. so there was increasing pain but the thing that really was getting me was the fever so right. I started to feel a little bit delirious a little bit out of it and I thought, whoa, okay, I'm normally very self-present, self-aware, and that's not normal, that's not good at all, For you know, to, as an understatement here, <laughs> that's not good. So, uh, ultimately, when I ended up at the hospital again, they did take me seriously, they, they said, you know, clearly you're in pain, and, and there's something going on, we're just not 100%, and so they, actually, I had my first ambulance ride that night, they, uh, got me into a gurney and into an ambulance to go over to another hospital where they had more specialists that could hopefully figure out what was going on so that was kind of fascinating
0: yeah hold hold, wait hold (laughs) the boat on that so so you we were taken so your mom took you to the hospital but that hospital what happened they couldn't diagnose you and so they sent you somewhere else or no
1: and by the by this point it was about midnight and they had a couple of doctors on call but there was another hospital locally that they knew had a lot more specialists on call a lot more and and it was also the hospital where i had been treated the first time and had my first surgery so uh, my mom and i actually had gone to that hospital first but the wait was about four hours and i looked turned to my mom and i said I don't mean to scare you, but I don't think I'm going to make it four hours, and she took that seriously, because I was by that point, again, feverish, delirious, in a lot of pain, saying, I'm not going to wait four hours, I'm sorry, I think this is really an emergency, so that's what led us to the other hospital and then they put me on an ambulance back, back to, to the first
0: hospital <laughs> so you went to hospital a they said four overweight you go to hospital b hospital b says we can't really help you because we don't have the specialists you need we're going to send you by ambulance back to hospital a oh okay so
1: I had a midnight ambulance ride back to the first hospital Uh, and and there I spent the night my mom sleeping in the corner kind of huddled over with her head down she had been with me through all of this taking care of me making sure I had everything I needed my partner was there waiting for me hand and foot and what I mean by this is doing things that I wouldn't have thought of doing um Mm -hmm. One of which was braiding and taking care of my hair. My mom brushed and braided my hair. And during my... It was about a week that I stayed in the hospital after my, um, my second abdominal surgery that my mom was there every day brushing my hair mm. and braiding it for me so that it was out of the way. My partner helped me put on my socks and got me to stand up. And, you know, the doctors are saying, well, you have to get up and start walking around. And mind you, I had... I think two or three separate tubes in my stomach, draining fluid from the infection, and IVs, and IV pole that I had to kind of carry around, and I was grumpy, and I was all, I don't want to get up, I don't want to walk around, and I have to wear these itchy hospital socks, and my mom went and found pink fluffy socks with little rubber soles, so that I wouldn't (laughs) have to wear the itchy hospital socks, so... Just my,
0: my family. <laughs> well, no, it's it's great that you bring all of this up. Um, you know, the, the idea of support and having people there with you, I, I really do hear this sort of underlying theme of patient-centered care and them asking you questions about what your preferences are in terms of the food that you like when you're not feeling well. And your mom, you know, bringing in footies, you know, that you like that aren't as itchy. And I hear more and more of this, and I can't, the, the hospital's escaping me, I believe it's down in Texas, but um, more and more hospitals in, in, in some places are recommending that people bring their own clothes, that they bring, you know, if they're able to eat their own food, that they, they bring the things that are more comfortable, because it really does affect their healing, and it really does improve their care, and how quickly they're able to, you know, bounce back from whatever procedure or whatever is happening. Um, And it sounds like that really did have an effect on you. I'm not to deviate just for a moment for our listeners, but um, I was the director of advanced care planning and and a lot of the same um, concepts are used for individuals in end of life. You know, what are their preferences for the things that they want to eat and how they want to be taken care of? And do they want their hair done and nails done? And, you know, why not do some of those things if it's not going to make them more sick why not um, find out what that person needs in order to help them feel better um, when they're in the hospital Um, so it sounds like that really that really helped you
1: i can think of another example which is my dad who is an incredibly kind incredibly caring person made me a custom back scratcher because I couldn't reach <laughs> I had all these incisions in my abdomen I couldn't I couldn't really lift my arms over my head of course my IVs are all tethering my arms down and my dad had this idea to make a back scratcher out of I don't remember what he had cut a ball in half or something so it was a rubber ball that was gentle enough not to hurt and not to you know scratch anything but enough that I could get to my back and under my legs, where they had, you know, they have those um, sort of leg braces that make sure that you don't get a blood clot. Yeah. So I could reach all of those because my dad had this brilliant idea of making this really great back scratcher. So it was the the communication behind that for me was I care about you and I'm thinking of you and I'm very <laughs> I, I'm thinking of ways to generate ways to make you more comfortable and that Meant the world to me in terms of my care my entire family my partner and even the doctors I want to mention a bit more about the surgeon. Yes who took care of me uh, so this surgeon of course is very well respected for his ability to diagnose but one thing that I didn't realize was his Ability to relate to a patient interpersonally and to Provide caring messages to a patient was unparalleled in my experience So he came into my room personally every day to check on me He held my hand and he said I know you're strong and I I know that you'll heal from this you're young and and you've already been through so much that I know that you can get through this Mm -hmm. and of course by that point I was thinking well if this incredible surgeon believes that I can heal and get through this then why wouldn't I believe that so Mm -hmm. I really really appreciated his focus on you know this may be an everyday thing for him but his focus on reassuring messages taking just a moment to say I believe that you can get through this and he may have been in the room all of three minutes checking the incisions holding my hand for a moment telling me that I believe that you will be okay I believe that you can get through this and wishing my family well and then leaving was enough for me to think I believe that he believes that I will recover I will follow whatever regimen he tells me I need to do, because <laughs> he has spent the time to reassure me of this and to explain to me in a way that I understood what was happening. So he, he explained it to my family, he spent time uh, you know, talking to them about this. And later on, so it, uh, fast forwarding kind of a year, I know we're sort of jumping a little bit, but fast forwarding a full year, I had still been in pain after these surgeries, And I was really confused as to why there were, you know, I had he had let me undergo basically every test I asked for. I've said, "Can you just help me figure out what? Why am I still in pain a year later?" So he had me, you know, he had the whole battery of tests ordered, and one thing after another didn't find anything. Had colonoscopy, endoscopy, had all kinds of scans, had an ultrasound, and he says, "Well." the area where it is was where my liver abscess had been and that's where your gallbladder is. And he said, well, you know, do you have a a family history of gallbladder issues? Well, yes, I do. Uh, you know, and, Mm. and they didn't find gallstones or anything. And maybe any other doctor might've said, well, you don't have gallstones, so you're okay. And I told him I'm still in pain. And he said, and my partner said, she's still in pain every day. And he told my partner, I know her well enough by this point to say, I definitely believe that if she is coming to me and saying that she's in pain, then she's in pain and we're going to get to the bottom of it. So Mm. ultimately he said, even if there's no gallstones, I would rather just, you know, make sure it's not your gallbladder. He ordered a test and it turns out my gallbladder was overactive. So he went in to remove my gallbladder. Come to find out that because of the infection, my liver was adhered to my rib cage with a whole bunch of scar tissue. Oh. So no wonder I was in wow. pain every time I would, you know, breathe in deeply or go exercise or do sit-ups or what have you. I would just mm. be in screaming pain because there was, there was scar tissue pulling on my liver. So he, he actually... Took the time afterwards to provide me pictures because, of mm. course, I was fascinated with this. I was uh, taking anatomy and physiology at the time that I had all my surgeries, which was fun because I got to be my own case study. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I asked for pictures, and he and he provided them, and he showed mm. me, and he and he explained what I was seeing and. He listened when, you know, not just the first time in the hospital, but again, over the next year, he listened when I said I was in pain, and he said, well, no wonder you were in pain, you know, you had all these crazy adhesions, he said, I expected to see some of this, I didn't necessarily expect there to be this many, so he was able to go in and repair a lot of that, take out you know, adhesions being scar tissue that form between organs when you have something kind of traumatic happening in your abdomen, he was able to kind of trim them. The problem with adhesions is, of course, that they do have a tendency to come back. But Mm. I have faith at this point that if I go back to him and say, hey, I'm still in, you know, I'm having recurring pain from these adhesions, Mm. he could help direct my care in a way that I feel comfortable and confident would be the right Mm. way.
0: I, I, I love this story in The Surgeon because I'm, I'm creating cur- curriculum at the moment and, and working on empathy and the ways to build rapport and trust. And came across some interesting um, studies Ho-Jid, in 2011 that found that doctors with high empathy actually saw improvement in diabetes control and cholesterol control with their patients. And patients who perceived physicians who had um, more empathy actually resulted in a decrease in severity of colds and the duration of their cold. And what it basically shows is that when you have a physician who your physician is offering reassurance, you know, as support, I'm here for you, I believe you, that those statements can actually improve your, your healing and your health. Um, and can improve patient outcomes. So it's, it's fascinating that, you know, and to hear the same thing with the nurse too, right? She was listening to what you said, and that, that actually improved your health. So, um, you know, as a communication scholar, I love these stories where whenever there's a nonverbal moment, right, that you were doing the turtle, I call it, you know, the, the mm-hmm. you know, protecting your abdomen, protecting, you know, creating that shell that he picked up on that. Um, the, the verbal responses and the reassurance and the support um, really do matter and go a long way um, so I want to get into a little bit of that more um, about the the suggestions the advice you know that you would offer clinicians who who are listening
1: so I know that it seems maybe like a no-brainer and like something that doesn't Necessarily need said but I think that it really does sometimes it really is as simple as asking I know that doctors and clinicians and nurses are people and I am a person too and honestly this is the scariest day of my life um, but that said I can remember what I like to eat when I'm sick so just asking me you know what do you like what do you do or asking me questions and then when I answer, you know, I'm in this amount of pain, believing and saying out loud, I believe you. Mm. When a patient has already kind of been through a a sort of freak situation, my understanding was that this sort of bowel perforation, my original surgeon said that in 20 years of her practice, she'd never had anything like that happen. Mm. And it's something that is a risk that comes along with surgery. But that said, you know, it it came with a lot of self doubt of, am I really experiencing this? And Mm -hmm. to have doctors validate that and say, I believe that you are in the amount of pain that you are saying. And later, even, you know, a year later, after a lot of this, when I'm still in pain, to say, I still believe that you're in pain. Mm -hmm. And finally, to get to the bottom of that, that was such a relief for me and my family. When we were wondering what was wrong, and I'm sure that it was a nice closure for the surgeon who, he got to the bottom of it. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah, so. but 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 the, the question I want to ask you, though, that I'm, I'm thinking about is, you didn't necessarily have an answer. They didn't have a diagnosis for you. Mm-hmm. But did it still feel reassuring to hear them say just simply, I believe you? We don't know what it is yet, but we believe that you're in the pain that you're in.
1: Yes, I not to overstate it, I honestly think that that's why I'm alive today, because doctors saying, I believe you, there were doctors who who didn't necessarily, or, or, or who were a little bit more dismissive, but they're, you know, the second time I went to the hospital, and I had a bit of a fever, and I was in a bit of pain, but there was not much else, they could have sent me home, they could have mm-hmm. said, you know, that can happen after surgery, you're probably okay, they said, at that hospital, we believe you, yeah. Then they they cared enough to send me to another hospital with specialists who also said, we believe you are going to find out what's wrong. Even not knowing, even with the uncertainty that myself and my family felt, it was very reassuring. It it helped us continue to pursue and not just say, oh well, you know, I hurt, I'm gonna go home and go to bed. No, I'm not gonna go home and go to bed because they know that there's something wrong. They just haven't figured it out yet, but it's Mm -hmm. coming.
0: Yeah. So, and and we've heard other. I've heard other stories, and I'm sure there are people listening who have been in the situation where their um, symptoms were dismissed and they were sent home, and something did happen. Um, and so, it's. I, I want to transition to um, to what suggestion and advice can you offer? Because I'm hearing, you know, the the theme of your story is about self advocacy. And many of the people who are on this podcast end up being self advocates. That's how they end up on the podcast because they have a story to tell about how they got to that point, whatever point it was, where they were listened to and they felt that they, you know, were really advocating for their own health or, or as a caregiver for someone else's. So can you can you walk us through a little bit, Claire, about um, how you sort of reached that point of feeling like you were a self-advocate and, and what you were doing when you reached that point.
1: So the turning point of being my own advocate really did come on the night when I had the fever and said we've got to go to the hospital because while, being your own advocate can be literally life-saving. And while I know that it's hard to remain empowered while you're racked with pain, you know your body the best. If doctors tell you you're fine and you know for sure that you're not, speak up. Jot down regular measurements, like noting every hour how much you're in pain on a scale of 1 to 10. Or in my case, I had this little digital thermometer and I kept watching my fever. And every 20 or 30 minutes or so, I would check again and I could see Mm. that it was going up. Even if it was only by 0.1 or 0.2, I had a number on a piece of paper that I could say, I know that something is going on. I have a number that I can refer to and bring to the doctors and say, my fever is increasing, here are the times and the measurements that I took. So <laughs> even when you're in the hospital, paying attention to things like your blood pressure and your heart rate when they take it, or noting your temperature means that you might catch something that your providers might miss,
0: mm-hmm. and it
1: helps you have something objective to point to when
0: you are advocating for yourself. So I just wanna uh, unpack all of that, cause that was, that was a lot and that was great. I. So I'm hearing you say that really what you're doing is following sort of that clinical um, protocol as well. So so they take measurements, you're taking your own measurement. You know, they're tracking how often it happens, what time it's happening. You were doing the same. <clears throat> so is it correct that by the time you showed up at the hospital, you had a had a list? You were like, my temperature was this at this time, it went up to this, it was at 101 at this time. Did you hand them that? Is 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 that accurate?
1: so I truthfully forgot the list
0: (laughs) (laughs) so truthfully I was in such a state that I didn't have the physical paper with me that's what I was wondering I'm thinking if you're in that much pain how how are Uh you how are you doing all of that
1: but I will say that later I actually just started seeing a new GP and I brought her a typed list of my medical history because it got so complicated that it was easier not to have to track down a bunch of forms and talk to a bunch of doctors. I said, you know, I'm, what's the common denominator here? I'm the common denominator. I've been there for all of it. So I can give you a list. I can tell you, you know, I did give her a physical piece of paper, but if you're keeping a list and you can remember, Hey, I took my temperature three or four times tonight, and it was steadily increasing. Even if you don't have the paper there with you, you know, I was there. I was me. So right. <laughs> so I know my temperature was increasing. So
0: Yeah, um, and you the said other, the the objective information, right? The numbers <laughs> keeping track of, of that information to share. So basically, you you are your own researcher. And so you're you're tracking your own data and then and providing that information or having a caregiver or somebody else help you with that. Okay. I'm sorry I mean interrupt. You're going to say something else.
1: No, you're fine. I think that that is something that You know having been in academia long enough myself i'm sort of (laughs) predisposed to do things like that i take a lot of notes and jot a lot of things down um it may not be something that would occur to you when you're in a lot of pain so maybe if you can't do it then have your have one of your caregivers or a loved one maybe help you keep a medical journal while you're experiencing this stuff and i want to also mention um writing stuff down while you're in the hospital about how you're feeling and what you're mm. doing and what's going on can be really important later when you are reconstructing and retelling your story and your experience. Because subsequent to all of this, I had I spent a year um, in therapy talking about what happened because it dramatically changed the way that I felt about life and my health and our healthcare system and You know, it had a huge impact on me, which I really needed to unpack. And so I wrote down some notes I don't have anywhere near as many as I would have liked to have, but there were some times where I typed out something in Microsoft Word or, you know, typed out something on my computer or wrote something on a note on a piece of notebook paper and I still have those where I can look back and say, This is how I was feeling at that time. Mm -hmm. And really spend time to reflect on that. And that was a very important part of my healing process. So if you can take a moment or two to jot something down, not just numbers necessarily, Mm -hmm. but how you're feeling, what's going on, what just happened, you know, that can be very important for you later too.
0: And I've heard other people say that too on the podcast is, you know, when they go through Um, The trauma that they've gone through, the procedure, the emergency situation, whatever, um, is it doesn't end. You know, when the physical healing happens, you know, the the emotional healing at some point happens. um, And for many people, I've heard. Um, who have been on the podcast is they find that moment to address the emotional part as well, because you've been through a lot. And so I'm I'm hearing you say that that's something else you did is you were tracking your emotions and how you were feeling so that you could um, address that with a therapist later.
1: Yes, that was absolutely key. And then one point I started writing a story about what happened from first person perspective. I didn't finish it because it just takes a lot of time to do. (laughs) I wish I had done it while I was in the hospital bed because I really didn't have anything to do at that point except sort of sit there and, and think and wonder and that sort of thing. And I wish I had taken the time to write that down. And I would definitely suggest that for people who experience things like this in medical scenarios and in other scenarios, but particularly when it comes to medical scenarios, one thing... That might be interesting would be tracking your medical records could help you sort of find closure in that as well Mm -hmm. Um, so one thing also that I would suggest is learn as much about your condition or illness as you Mm -hmm. can before during and after I mean I know that uh, consulting WebMD to diagnose yourself is not necessarily the best idea but once you know what's going on Learning as much as you can about your condition or illness can help you make medical decisions later, Mm -hmm. and it can help you explain to your doctor when there's a change or if there's something that was missed or a symptom that might point to something else. For a confused and hurting patient, finding an explanation without all the medical jargon can be really important for making sense of what's going on.
0: Yeah, it's, and, and I've heard that as a theme too, is really understanding the diagnosis and the, and the language, the medical jargon, to be able to talk the talk um, because physicians, or clinicians I should say, have to translate. So they have to translate from medicalese, medical jargon, to lay language. And more and more people that come on this podcast talk about having to, you know, translate from lay language to medical jargon in order to have those conversations. And I'm hearing people say that they're taken more seriously when they use the medical terminology. Of course, uh-huh. if you don't have a diagnosis for all of the, the people who are stuck in that liminal space, you know, being neither diagnosed or undiagnosed, but sort of being pseudo-diagnosed and not knowing, that can, that can be really um, challenging. Um, I wanna go back really quickly. Um, what, what are people tracking in the hospital? You said to take notes. What kind of notes are you suggesting they take?
1: Every hour while I was in the hospital, every hour or so, they would come take my blood pressure and mm-hmm. they would check my oxygen level and they would check my heart rate. There are a couple of other things that they checked every so often, like my legs, if my legs were swelling, or anything like that to be maybe indications of a blood clot. Uh, So you can track the numbers that they're tracking. I would always look and see, you know, is my blood pressure a little bit higher than normal or a little bit lower? I wonder why that is. And then I could ask the doctor, hey, it it looked like my blood pressure might have been a little bit high. Why? I mean, I was just curious maybe why that is. And then the doctor has a chance to take a second look and say, actually, yeah, it was. Let's take another look at that. Um, so there, there are definitely opportunities while they're taking measurements. Maybe you can't see the meter or thermometer whatever is going on, but if you can, that's definitely a good thing to take note of and think about.
0: Interesting. Yeah, because I, I, my first thought when I was listening to you is, why would you track your blood pressure and temperature? Aren't they tracking it? And what, <laughs> what I heard you say, though, is, yes, they are tracking it, and they have a lot of other people they're tracking and all the Uh information they're tracking, you are more likely to see something in your record that they may not pick up on because it was a minute change. Um, uh-huh. And even if it wasn't something that's worth noting to them, maybe it's something for you to, wor- it's worth asking. And so you're, you're part of the team. So I'm hearing you say that you're really part of the clinical team in that respect because you're tracking what they're tracking, you're asking questions as they're asking questions, and so you're involved. And, and it wasn't based on distrust. It wasn't like you assumed that they weren't doing their job. It was you wanted to be involved in, in the care that they were providing you. Is that, would that be correct? Yes,
1: exactly. And I think, uh, you know, me being my own sort of anatomy and physiology case study (laughs) because I was just curious sort of as to what was going on around me because I was sort of bored in a hospital bed. I had nothing else to do. So I was absentmindedly watching the blood pressure readings, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But at the same time, you, you can absolutely be an active part of the team and understand that the nurses who are taking care of you again, they have so many people to take care of, they are people too, they are overwhelmed, they've got so much going on, and there's different teams of nurses, so the day shift versus the night shift, they may not have thought that something was significant at the time, maybe they didn't see the previous readings, so they see your blood pressure and they think that that's normal, whereas it may have changed significantly, and again, you're the the common denominator here, you're the one who's there the whole time, who has the opportunity to kind of see that, and say, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. And you don't have to question your doctor or your team You know, know, it's not an interrogation to say, why didn't you catch this? It's just sort of more of a curious question of, I wonder why that might have changed. And your doctor might have an answer, they may say, it's not really a big deal, we can expect that with this new medication you're on, but then you know that. Then you now know, oh, this is the medication that I'm on and it can do this. So then you're even more informed when it comes to your own care.
0: And I wanna highlight for our listeners what I'm hearing you say also is how you ask the question. Because being an advocate you know, is asking the question, could you explain this to me, help me understand. Um, you could also be an advocate by yelling and screaming at somebody too to be heard. Um, when you do that though, you're heard differently. And it's not to say that you shouldn't yell because it's an emergency. Um, What The ways in which you're asking these questions though and not interrogating and saying you did this wrong, it's help me understand or I have a question about something and I think that's really helpful for listeners to hear is how you ask a question, the tone of your voice and the way that it's framed makes a difference. And um, when I do community talks I always advocate to people to treat clinicians like human beings even when they're not treating you like a human being. The more that you recognize their humanness and talk to them as a human being, the more likely they're going to respond positively for, towards you and, and, and have a good conversation and have an effective encounter. Um, and, I'm, and, and I picked up on that and wanted to have people who are listening hear that the, the questions you're asking and how you're asking them, Claire, I also uh-huh. believe had an effect on the, the type of care you received. And believe
1: me, it's not easy. When you are in pain, you are hurting. I had tubes out of my stomach. I had tubes in my nose and down my throat. I had IVs in both arms. (laughs) So I am sure that I came off my fair share of crabby in the (laughs) hospital when stuff was not going right. But if you can, try to frame it in the best way that you can, as a curiosity and not an interrogation, I think that that can go miles for helping you. And then a doctor might take a moment to explain something that they might not have otherwise thought to explain to you.
0: Yeah. So we are, we are near the end. Wanted to see if there are any other final thoughts or comments. I always invite our interviewees, any final thoughts or comments for the listeners?
1: So I wanted to address four loved ones. I can only imagine what it would have been like to be alone and in that much pain because my family took shifts to stay with me during the day and night. And the simple actions of brushing, braiding my hair, my dad making the back scratcher, my partner putting on my socks, these were things that contributed directly to my recovery. And also family and partners being there to listen to what the doctor says and remember things is incredibly important Because when I am flat on my back, dosed with pain meds, don't know what's going on my family and partner could be there to listen to things and remember things about my care that a week later when I'm still recovering I had no presence of mind to remember so for loved ones Just know that it is absolutely critical, even if you're not participating or doing anything, just to be present and listening, not just to the patient but to the doctor because you can have a huge impact on
0: how someone heals. Excellent. That's really good advice. Well, thank you so much, Claire, for being on the podcast. I appreciate you joining us today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for
0: having me. So for our listeners, again, uh, you can like us on Facebook. We are also on iTunes and Google Play. Uh, We are happy to announce that we are well over 10,000 downloads in 32 countries, so we encourage you to spread the word and tell others. This is Nicole Deffenbaugh with Health Stories.